0: This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Let it shine. Welcome, Talk Catholic, the website.com, your host, Tim Kilcoin. No agendas here, just the straight and narrow through Mary to Jesus. Catholic faith proclaimed and preserved. Hope to see you here every week. Talk Catholic with Tim Kilcoyne and the beauty of fall. Unfortunately, there's something very ugly going on in Rome right now, and we'll talk to that in just a second. I share more joy as i just played my first round of golf in 2023 and played about as good as i think i have ever played and it was on the heels of an injury going back to 2013 to my head and neck that really put me on the bench and i've only been able to play a little bit here and there ever since and uh what joy because i've been playing that game since seven years of age So there's a little bit of continuity. (laughs) And boy, I said a prayer to our Lord afterwards. And it says, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for my golf clubs and my trumpet. Because if I only had the condition of things in the church to talk about, I'd be blowing a gasket like 24-7 right now during the time of this synod on synodality that has been going on and will continue through October 29th. This Is devastating, potentially and likely. And as I have predicted for months on end now, could well lead towards schism, a third one in Catholic Church history. And all I can say is stay integrated, keep your gifts alive, because you never know when you're really going to need them in the midst of tyranny, not to mention heresy of all kinds, which just so happen to be the two criteria for excommunication, according to Doctor of the Church, Cardinal St. Robert. Bellamine. And it's all been going on in our church since the 1970s. I keep on highlighting the fact that I was privy to all of this as an undergraduate theology student at a little place down in Chestnut Hill, Mass and um, no surprise to me the wheels have been turning in this direction for a long long time and i have a book here i thought it was most providential that in going to mass on a particular monday past and we will be doing our book review in the second half of the show on who am i to judge but i have to highlight this little gem of a book i found down in the basement for people to take if they so desire and it was called call to action or call to apostasy how dissenters plan to remake the catholic church in their own image by brian close of the human life international copyright 1997 maybe not coincidental in the waning years of st john paul ii's pontificate who these dissenters hated oh if this wasn't the playbook, this little thing I have in my hands is the absolute playbook for what the orchestra is concocting over in Rome right now. And I will go through just a few tenets of this book in just a second for sure. But before I do that, I think it's a very good time to highlight an apparition, for Our Lady has predicted it all. And she keeps reminding us with successive apparitions and this one which kind of goes under the radar too often our lady of la salette and i read from taylor marshall's book infiltration in 1846 the blessed virgin mary appeared in an apparition to two children at la salette france five years later pope pius ix formally approved the apparition of our lady of la salette and its two secrets the two children were maximin Girard, age 11 and melanie calvat age 14 who lived in an 800 person town of La Salette in southeastern France. There, the Blessed Virgin sat unceremoniously with her elbows on her knees, weeping into her hands. She wore a high headdress composed of various roses, a silver robe, a gold apron, white shoes and a golden crucifix hung from a chain around her neck. Roses were also on the ground at her feet. While crying, she spoke to the children in their French dialect. She revealed a secret to each of the two children and then disappeared. And there are a couple of versions of these secrets, Melanie's anyway, in 1851 and also 1879. But as Taylor Marshall says, he believes that both versions are valid. And here's here's just a little bit of the secrets. She said, Woe to the priests! And to those dedicated to God, who by their unfaithfulness and their wicked lives are crucifying my Son again. The sins of those dedicated to God cry out to heaven and call for vengeance, and now vengeance is at their door, for there is no one left to beg mercy and forgiveness for the people. There are no more generous souls, there is no one left worthy of offering a stainless sacrifice to the eternal for the sake of the world. Our lady names 1864 is the year in which Satan and his demons will be unleashed from hell. And remember also the vision of Pope uh, Leo the 13th had the message given that Satan had pleaded with our Lord uh, to have full reign over the world for 100 years. Well, it is at least likely that 100 years started in the late 1800s. We don't know the exact day and time, but rest assured, something big and evil broke loose in the late 1800s, and the 100-year culmination is before our very eyes, whether we want to admit it or not. In the year 1864, Our Lady says, Lucifer, together with many demons, will be unloosed from hell, and they will put an end to faith, little by little, even in those dedicated to God. They will blind them in such a way that unless they are blessed with a special grace, these people will take on the spirit of these angels of hell. Several religious institutions will lose all faith and will lose many souls. All the civil governments will have one and the same plan, which will be to abolish and do away with every religious principle to make way for materialism atheism spiritualism and vice of all kinds sound a little bit familiar rome will lose faith and become the seat of the antichrist melanie's booklet received much resistance in rome presumably because it condemned wicked priests so violently and stated Rome will lose faith and become the seat of the Antichrist. In 1880, the Holy Office restricted the book, but it was reprinted repeatedly in France and Italy into the 1900s. Yet Pope Pius X seems to have given her approbation when having read the biography of Melanie, he exclaimed to the bishop La Nostra Santa and proposed to open the cause for her beatification. Melanie confirmed the claim of Cardinal Manning who stated the apostasy of the city of Rome and its destruction by the Antichrist may be thought so new to many Catholics that I think it well to recite the text of the theologians of greatest repute, who are all of the consensus that Rome shall apostatize from the faith. So please just keep these little secrets in mind as we proceed with the following analysis here today. And we will also get back to the book, The New Springtime That Never Came by Bishop Athanasius Schneider to expound on this apostasy as he did so well in, in that particular interview. But for today, I'd like to read some little excerpts from this book which I firmly believe was providentially found last Monday, as I mentioned, call to action or call to apostasy. And as I mentioned, reliving my undergraduate theology days, I am more than familiar with the call to action, which was founded in 1976 in Detroit at a convention. And then this other organization referred to in this book, the Association for the Rights of Catholics in the Church, founded in 1980, the ARCC, we shall refer to it. And this was founded in reaction, it says, to Vatican censor of such radical theologians as Edward Skillebeck, Jacques Poyer, and Hans Küng. So there you go. These are the very theologians that, I was a recipient of in my undergraduate training. And I assure you these were not magisterial salute to its authority kind of guys. They were the new revolutionaries. And this ARCC came up with this constitution and the reason I'm going to read a few of the articles from this because There's no question in my mind that uh, it just parallels what's going on over in Rome right now with the Synod on Synodality. The theological underpinnings are all right here in this Constitution that they uh, came up with. Article 1, all Catholics have the right to follow their informed consciences in all matters. And then I'll read the Catholic analysis of such a conviction. Dissenters passionately believe that the final arbiter of any decision must be the person's conscience, regardless of whether it is properly formed or not. Of course, if the Church accepts this ideal, the original standard, reliance on an informed conscience based on the authority of the magisterium, will be swept away to be replaced by a mandate for pure moral relativism. Those who embrace the supremacy of human conscience by definition discard objective truth because the unfettered conscience is notoriously flexible compromising and rationalizing when temptation strikes the centers are very fond of quoting vatican II document dignitatis sumani declaration on religious freedom in support of their contention that we should be able to do anything our conscience does not object to father john courtney murray principal author of the declaration adds this footnote the declaration does not base the right to the free exercise of religion on freedom of conscience Shall i read that one more time the declaration on religious freedom, from the Vatican II document, does not base the right to the free exercise of religion on the freedom of conscience. Nowhere does this phrase occur. And the Declaration nowhere lends its authority to the theory for which the phrase frequently stands, namely, that I have the right to do what my conscience tells me to do, simply because my conscience tells me to do it. This is a perilous theory. Its particular peril is subjectivism, the notion that in the end it's my conscience and not the objective truth that determines what is right and wrong, true or false. Or as I'm fond of saying, down with woke because God spoke. You don't get to create Reality, nor truth, which is always based in reality. Brian Close then refers to Pope John Paul II's encyclical Veritati Splendor, the splendor of truth, paragraphs 61 to 64. Informing their consciences, the Christian faithful must give careful attention to the sacred and certain teaching of the Church, for the Catholic Church is by the will of Christ, the teacher of truth. Her charge is to announce and teach authentically that truth which is Christ, and at the same time with her authority to declare and confirm the principles of the moral order which derive from human nature itself. I highlight that ladies and gentlemen after just reading from a website religionnews.com giving a little snapshot of what the synod is all about. There will be 464 participants at the synod and 365 will have the right to vote. For the first time lay people will be full voting members of the synod compared with earlier synods where only bishops had the right to vote. There will be spiritual assistants, 28 theologians and 34 facilitators whose role will be to promote a synodal atmosphere at the event and encourage what the Instrumentum Laboris describes as conversations in the spirit. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, everything is going to be structurally changed in accordance with the spirit of Vatican II, not the letter. Of Vatican two. this has been the baloney that we have seen going back to the 1970s for those that can remember the demolition derby as I call it of how everything traditional was eradicated from your local parish and all of a sudden we got these ungodly churches being built that you couldn't even recognize, but they were symbolic of the new art. You know, what it is, ladies and gentlemen, is that we're just waking up to stuff that's been ongoing for almost 50 years in our church, and we were kind of hoping it would go away, and I'm sure St. John Paul II was hoping that throughout most of his pontificate, because indeed these organizations referred to were absolutely in reaction to the simple fact that he was trying to defend Catholic Church teaching every step of the way in faithfulness. And I did a book review about a year ago, Keeping the Church Catholic with St. John Paul II by Monsignor George A. Kelly, if you can get your hands on that book. And another one by Monsignor Kelly was called Battle for the American Church. It lays it out absolutely on the table as to what the dissenters were truly up to. And we... Do not need to go along with them because they're in big numbers. If there's anything biblically true, it's not about numbers. Okay, they've had their day, that's for darn sure. And they're mostly baby boomers and they don't want, you know, they're digging their heels in. They don't want to give it up, even though what did it result in? The closing of parishes by the thousands. All right, that's the fruit. And the downward spiral of just about every other healthy moral trend. See the appendix in Deadly Indifference by Eric Sammons. But make sure you're sitting with a towel to dry your tears. It's time to just expose the darn thing in the clear sunshine of God's truth. I read Article 2 of this Constitution parallels our synod. Officers of the church have the right to teach on matters both of private and public morality only after wide consultation with the faithful prior to the formulation of the teaching. Notice it didn't say apostolic successors, but rather officers, Well, Cardinal Seurat doesn't even get an invitation to the Synod. Who were the officers? Here is a democratic restructuring, if there ever was one. The Catholic response here, if a group of people with diverse backgrounds meets to discuss the morality of a particular act, and if one of the ground rules of the discussion is tolerance for the viewpoints of others, the inevitable result will be the lowest common denominator, only that position that is most tolerant and non-judgmental, or in other words, most liberal. This is exactly what the dissenters want, a democratic system of consultation that guarantees that their objectives will be voted in by the people through their version of dialogue. More fundamentally, this article too completely rejects objective truth by subjecting moral decisions to a public vote. That is just bingo with regard to the apostasy that is taking place with this synod. Because this is breaking thoroughly. Raymond Arroyo spoke to this recently on The World Over. It wasn't about women's ordination or the blessing of homosexual unions. No, the bigger outrage here is the absolute restructuring of the church to turn it into basically a political democracy where everybody has a vote. To put it in a streetwise jargon, now basically Joe Sixpack has the same rights to say what church teaching is. I Don't think so. And I'm sure our Lord would put it in much more certain terms because our Lord cares about Joe Pack and knows that he can't lead the pack but must be given clear good rules of the road. Excuse me, dissenters. We're not talking about a democracy when it comes to our Lord and his divine revelations. We're talking about being faithful to handing them down from generation to generation by only appropriate apostolic authority and making sure you pass that baton. Exactly what we will continue to do right here. This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. We'll get back to our book review, Who Am I to Judge? On the other side. Take some time out, please. Go to the desert with Jesus before the Blessed Sacrament and sing the song, In Your Presence, Holy Spirit, We Welcome You, by Chris Bowater.
1: Of your life, revelations of your past.
0: Okay. So Professor Sri is trying to make a distinction for us that he more or less cuts the dichotomy between social morality and the morality inside the individual, as C.S. Lewis called it. And that's the morality that most of us, well, we don't want to go there. And neither does the church's leadership, because your local sermon might touch on a few social issues, like the famous ecology or other very obscure matters of social justice outreach, perhaps. But it won't go in the direction of personal individual virtue, rebuking you for failing last week. We haven't heard that sermon in about 60 years. When was your conscience truly rattled by the latest sermon on a Sunday? The ultimate bottom line should be whether or not you are becoming a better version of yourself with the little acts that nobody even sees. Those mundane things, perhaps, maybe not so mundane, the things that go behind closed doors as if they don't matter and so professor sri focuses in especially on this personal dimension of morality he says whenever we encounter the myth that one's personal life choices don't affect others. It's important to point out that there are two ways to fail in life. We can fail morally doing things that directly hurt others, but we also fail by lacking in virtue by not being the best we could be. A prayer at Mass reflects these two aspects of human failure. When we confess our sins at the start of the liturgy, we express sorrow not just for what I have done, those sins committed, but also for what I have failed to do, the good we did not do. This reminds me that the way I live my life will affect others for better or worse. Though people often say they want to make a difference in the world, we must realize that everyone's going to do that. Everyone is going to leave their mark and have an impact on other people's lives. The question is whether it'll be a good or bad impact. Life is not all about me. It's not a solo game. It's more like a team sport with our actions either benefiting or hurting the people in our lives. For example, I was never great at basketball. I could follow the rules, but I was a poor shot, not very good at dribbling and not much of a rebounder. When I played on the eighth grade B team, I stayed in bounds and avoided fouls, but I did not contribute much when I was on the court my lack of ability hurt the team. Similarly, it's not enough to go through life avoiding doing bad things that directly hurt other people. If I don't play the game of life with excellence, others will suffer the consequences. A father who spends too much time at work and not enough time with his children might not be hurting anyone directly in the sense of stealing from them or physically harming them, but his failure to invest personally in his children will deeply affect them, leaving a scar that will carry for the rest of their lives. His choices in his personal life are simply not private matters. The medical student who works only hard enough to pass will not be the best doctor he can be for future patients. The man looking at pornography trains himself to treat women not as persons to love and respect, but as objects to be exploited for his own pleasure. The woman getting a divorce to run off with another man impacts not only her husband, but also her children, who will be deeply affected by the broken home. We all make mistakes in life, and God is merciful and can bring healing no matter what we've done. But to think that our choices each day in our so-called private lives don't affect other people is naive. When we fail to be the best we can be, we have a negative impact on the people God has placed in our lives. Our spouse, children, friends, colleagues, employers, and parish will suffer from our lack of commitment and virtue rather than being influenced positively. The great Roman orator Cicero once made a similar point. There are some who either from zeal in attending to their own business or through some sort of aversion to their fellow men claim that they are occupied solely with their own affairs without doing anyone any injury. But while they stay clear of the one kind of injustice, they fall into another. They are traitors to the social life, for they contribute to none of it, none of their effort, none of their means. Cicero is pointing out the selfishness of anyone whose main goal in life is to do whatever he wants as long as he avoids hurting others. The fact remains we will hurt other people if we fail to give the best of ourselves at home, at work, at play, and in the world. Well, here's a quick golf analogy. I was listening to a sports talk show and a well-known PGA Tour pro called in on the show. And this was during the time of the Ryder Cup, just recently and he was asked why is it that uh, the u.s tour pros seem to get smoked when they play the european counterparts especially across the pond as they say on their turf in team play and he brought up the fact that for whatever reason this is i don't know but the european tour pros mingle and socialize with one another all the more whereas the united states tour pro is kind of doing his own thing. He's got a world of glitter and glamour being on the tour, but he's isolated. And he doesn't do well with the team component of the Ryder Cup. So while they hone in on individual aspects of their swing, for instance, in the privacy of their lesson tee, they're not ready for competition in the broader milieu of other competitors. This aversion to the social dimension of match play could be compared to life in general, where you're comfortable in your cubicle behind closed doors, and you're doing some of your homework pretty well individually, but you're not ready for the big stage where you're going to have to work in harmony with other individuals called team. And of course, it is up to a good coach to be able to see to it that integration. Well, who is the coach in your life? I have mentioned this on previous shows, the importance of having a spiritual director not just priests monks brothers and nuns are to have them every baptizing confirmed catholic and christian in general in my opinion needs a wiser more experienced typically older person of god who has seen it all and they can give you that little report card on how you're doing relative to your weaknesses the strengths are obvious everyone can see those But the spiritual director will be able to point out these other defects, yes indeed, of character. And unfortunately, I made the comment that as we get older, oh boy, we are not too open to this concept of a spiritual director. In fact, I almost lost a friend over this very issue as I begged him to seek one out because he was just too talented in the spiritual life in terms of his evangelical giftedness, and he wasn't doing much with it. And I told him, I says, I can't be your spiritual director because I'm going to beat you up, <laughs> metaphorically. I'm going to be tough on him. In any event, thankfully, he did go to a, a an older priest who I think is pretty solid as a rock, and uh, he'll do a good job taking him To the wall and after pounding sand for a little while we're now back as friends in fact just today spent four hours with them socially waxing theological on one topic after another all good but yeah he didn't like me for a while this is what our leaders have got to accept. But that challenging is just what we need, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's not just for 17-year-olds in the schoolyard. No, this is for adults, say, 19 years of age onward to 99. And we here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM will stay with you for the long haul. Have a great week, everyone. God bless. Let your light shine. That is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoin talkcatholic.com. St. Mother Teresa told us your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless.